0: This is The Art Life. Hello, I'm Grace Gordon, actress and activist, and I am your host here today for my first episode as solo host. Before I got the show running with new interviews, I wanted to do a special episode that was requested by one of our listeners talking about the American Film Institute's 100 Greatest American Films list. In 1997, AFI released a list of the 100 Greatest American Films. The list was compiled through votes from AFI members coming from a list of 400 nominated films. And then in 2007, they did a 10th anniversary edition where a couple of films were scooched off the list and a couple added on. You can look at both of these lists on AF5's website, and they'll be linked in our show notes as well. But I wanted to talk about this list today because as a personal challenge, uh, at at the beginning of the pandemic or somewhere in there, I challenged myself to watch every film on this list. And through that, I learned that One of our listeners, Louisa, hi Louisa, also did this a number of years ago. I've discovered that a few of my Instagram followers have done this as well. So I guess this is a thing that people do. I've started noticing um, in memoirs or TV shows, people reference this list, film nerds like me who went through it. And this was my little challenge for quarantine. But at the encouragement of Luisa and my dad and stepmom as well, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I learned from this list, what I liked and didn't like, and uh, just reflect on what it was like to go through these hundred films during quarantine. So I want to give a content warning as well at the top of this Um, This episode is going to talk about films I loved, films I didn't like at all, as well as films that I think should be taken off the list entirely. And that last category um, covers some themes of racism and racial stereotypes, blackface, bigoted humor, and a general theme of PTSD because of so many war films on this list. So, if any of those themes are things you are not currently able to listen to a podcast about, please hop off and come back at a time where you are ready for that. Now that I have prepped you on the content of this episode, I think I'll just get started. So I have a lot of thoughts and I had many people ask me what I recommended and what I wanted to steer them away from, which is why I'm here doing this. I started this list with about 20, maybe 25 films already under my belt. I had seen a good number of them, particularly the ones that were newer, like Fellowship of the Ring, for example. Um, I also already had a few of them on my favorite films list, like The Shawshank Redemption and The Sixth Sense. But when I looked at it, I was a little overly confident because I figured, oh, I watch everything. Uh, I'll definitely be far ahead. No, I had only seen about 20 on the list when I started. And part of the reason for that is that the AFI Greatest American Films list has Two films directed by directors of color and zero films directed by women. And while I myself can always do better at prioritizing stories told by more diverse voices, I am not one to choose a list of a hundred films directed by white guys in the twenties, the thirties, and beyond. So because of this, there's actually quite a lot on here that I hadn't seen and I was lucky enough and it's worth noting now that I am starting this list with a baseline also of liking many old movies films like Casablanca and Sunset Boulevard are some of my favorite on there but that's all just to say that I was familiar with some of them and I like a fair amount of golden age of Hollywood films and I know that plenty of people listening won't and that's okay I'm not going to be talking about every single film on the list, and I encourage you to check it out. But more than that, I encourage you to check out the ones that I that I loved so strongly. So the two films that were made by directors of color were Do the Right Thing and The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense is one of my favorite movies ever because I'm from Philly and it's just a perfect film. But I started this challenge, watching those very early on, re-watching one and, and watching Do the Right Thing for the first time. And so I started strong. I started strong because those are two of, of the the greatest American films, without a doubt. I agree on those two. But as I went on, I realized that there was just so much about this. There is just so much about this list that needs to be reconsidered, re-examined, And there needs to be a new vote. I have questions about what the membership base of AFI itself is, since these are people, since the people voting might be voting from a very specific perspective. Now, at the beginning of their website, at the beginning of the list, AFI writes, the American Film Institute proudly curates lists to celebrate excellence in the art form. We believe their greatest impact is to inspire personal, passionate discussions about what makes a great film and why, and also to chart the evolution of the art form. Since its inception, American film has marginalized the diversity of voices that make our nation and its stories strong. And these lists reflect that intolerable truth. AFI acknowledges its responsibility in curating these lists that have reinforced this marginality and looks forward to releasing new lists that will embrace our modern day and drive culture forward. So right at the top of the list, AFI acknowledges how this very, very popular list just further marginalized artists of color, women. It acknowledges that this is voted on by a very specific group of people that it does not reflect the United States as a whole. And I really appreciate that. But is it enough to acknowledge it? Because this list hasn't been updated since 2007. It's 2021 now. I started this in 2020 and they've had time. But there's still so much that I discovered I'm a finisher myself. I find that once I start a book, I have to finish it, even if I don't like it. Yes, I know. Terrible habit. Um, Zandra, who was a host on this show for a long while, she is the same way. And we would talk frequently about how sometimes we assign ourselves things that are just busy work, that we don't need to do. But because we are so disciplined, we will always do them. We will complete the list, complete the task, complete the book complete the TV show, even if we aren't enjoying it. And this challenge was something that really brought that up for me because I had plenty of people encourage me, you don't need to watch that one. Or if you're 20 minutes in and you hate it, let it go. But I can't do that. I wouldn't be able to cross it off. That's just not how my brain works. But if you are someone who has that sense of freedom that you put 20 minutes in and it doesn't grab you, I encourage you to walk away. I encourage you to walk away from anything you don't like. I I admire people who can do that. I am not talking about this aspect of myself as a strength. I'm talking about it as, as a quality. Neither good nor bad, but true about me. And there were plenty of films on this list that I was struggling through. So, for example, the Robert Altman films, MASH and Nashville. Two films that were incendiary at its time or saying something political had absolutely no impact on me but frustration and offense. MASH is a film that was very critical of Vietnam. It's a war film that doesn't actually have any sequences of war because the whole thing takes place at the camp. At the time, it was celebrated as this brave satire of Vietnam and of this unjust war that we should never have been a part of. But the film itself punches down. It wasn't funny almost ever to me because the humor itself is bigoted. It is mostly directed at people of color. It mostly treats women as sex objects, maybe entirely makes horrible, callous jokes about the mentally ill. And did not inspire me at all. It just made me uncomfortable. Is it worth it to watch things and read things that make you uncomfortable? Yes. Is it worth it to expose yourself to points of view that are outdated? Yes. But when my dad heard that I was watching Altman films, he said, oh, you're going to love them. And I understand why he would say that because he probably hasn't seen them in 30, 40 years since they came out. And and he remembers them fondly. He remembers them as political and brave. And for me now in our modern day, they were lazy and bigoted and punched down. Nashville was almost three hours long, I believe. And my main complaint about it was that it was just boring. But yet again, the female characters are barely treated as people and the last five minutes was entertaining and that's all i'll say because i don't want to spoil the plot of any particular movie but it was interesting to be excited to watch these things because this director is known as someone who made such bold political statements at the time and i was so deeply disappointed upon watching them on the flip side Two films that I expected to hate, but completely fell in love with, were Spartacus and The Deer Hunter. Spartacus was Stanley Kubrick's film about ancient Rome, yet another film that I believe clocks in at over three hours, if I remember correctly, and was either his only studio film or certainly the one that a studio had the most control over. Knowing a little bit about Kubrick, how horribly he treated his female actors, especially Shelley Duvall on The Shining, I can absolutely appreciate his aesthetics, I can absolutely appreciate his direction of actors that can be so terrifying and how complete his vision is for every film he puts together. But I experience a fair amount of discomfort watching his films because I know too much. And because it does absolutely come out, The Shining is a film that really shows the misogyny that he had, that, that Stephen King, who wrote the book the film was based on, did not have. The plot changed in the film. The characters changed massively from the book because Kubrick was infusing his own very, very narcissistic view of himself and negative view of women into it. While it's still a very entertaining and groundbreaking film, I often think about What adaptation could have been made with a different director? Now, because of this, I decided I was not going to like Spartacus. It's a movie that takes place in ancient Rome, a long, long epic. And I was floored after starting it because I loved every single minute of it. I was glowing the entire time. It had a sensitivity about it and the it had a sensitivity about it. All of these gladiator-muscled men reading poetry, singing songs, crying on camera, and taking care of one another. There was a reverence for the feminine. There were sex workers portrayed in a gentle and compassionate way. There was so much about Spartacus that I loved and I even felt like, wow, I wasted thousands of hours of my life watching and rewatching and talking about Game of Thrones because all of the things that I loved about Game of Thrones were really condensed beautifully within Spartacus. So that one was a good challenge because I had decided ahead of time I was not going to like it and then I was pleasantly surprised. Now, The Deer Hunter is another film about Vietnam that is very much about PTSD and the way that trauma affects our lives in the moment and far beyond. So my best friend Amaya is a social worker and had brought this film up to me many times in our lives. And uh, I, I had never watched it. And I just felt that it was clearly going to be something very heavy. And so I really resisted for as long as I could until finally it was on this list and I had to tackle it. And yet again, it defied my expectations, not in that it was an easy watch, it is probably the most traumatizing and heavy movie I've ever seen, but it was also some of the greatest acting, the most impactful storytelling, uh, the most gripping, upsetting scenes in film history. And... Um, And something that I have been talking about and thinking about since. So I wouldn't say that the deer hunter defied my expectations because it was in some ways what I expected. But it was something that I loved so much more than I thought myself capable of. And I think that it's important to challenge ourselves to watch things that are hard or that we have resistance to. So I loved Spartacus and I loved the deer hunter. I also discovered or maybe rediscovered a love for silent films. I loved all of the Charlie Chaplin films so very much. City Lights in particular, but also Modern Times and Buster Keaton's film, The General, was just such a delight. It was an action film, it was beautiful, it is amazing. If you're a movement artist, performer of any kind, I really do think that watching the Charlie Chaplin films, Modern Times, The Gold Rush, and City Lights, and The General starring Buster Keaton, it's a great investment of your time. You can learn so much by watching these guys. Learn so much about filmmaking. Learn so much about what can be done even without heavy dialogue, what can be done just with the body, how much emotion can be portrayed just with a look down to the floor. Those were some that I absolutely adored. At the same time, there were silent films I had absolutely no patience for. So Intolerance is a film on the AFI list. Intolerance was made by D.W. Griffith as a reaction, as a defense, after he released the infamously racist film, Birth of a Nation. In 1915 when Birth of a Nation came out, uh, a a film that reinforced extremely harmful racist stereotypes and also showed Ku Klux Klan members in a positive light, in 1915 when this came out, it was deemed too racist by many. If that gives you a sense... Of how bad it must be. I have not personally seen Birth of a Nation. I don't need to. I'm good. But I've seen clips of it for various anti-racism courses I've been a part of. The fact that it was 1915 and it was still much too racist for for many of its audience members should tell you all you need to know. One year later, D.W. Griffith released Intolerance, a three-hour-long silent film that sh- that intermeshes four stories of love and lovers facing discrimination through history. It is an incredibly ambitious film. The sets and the costumes are unbelievable for its time, and D.W. Griffith was an innovator as a director in filmmaking. He was an innovator, and you can see watching something like Intolerance how much he inspired on a technical level he went bankrupt making intolerance because it was so long and so expensive but he really wanted to put it out into the world and so for that reason i can see why it's on the list because it is astounding visually but when you take into consideration <laughs> when you take into consideration the fact that he made this film as a defense for the harsh criticism of his blatant disgusting racism as if to prove hey i'm i'm a good guy Hey, I'm tolerant. When you take into consideration that that's the reason the film was made, I don't recommend it. I think you can do better things with three hours. There are better things to watch. So while I discovered some silent films I really enjoyed, like Charlie Chaplin's work and Buster Keaton's Intolerance, directed by D.W. Griffith, is something I encourage AFI to replace. Some of these films on the list are astounding because of the technical innovation in them, like intolerance, or some of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton's work as well. But some of them are on the list because of the incredible writing, because of the emotional impact good writing can have on an audience, even in the simplest settings. My sister a couple of years ago did a screenwriting course and, and traditionally the number one rule is screenwriting is show, don't tell. Don't explain the plot within the script. Don't explain the plot within the dialogue. Don't have long sweeping monologues when you can show so much in just a look or a touch. My sister brought up when she was in a TV writing course She brought up to me that she just really can't stand films that are people talking in rooms. She doesn't like things that are people talking in rooms. And that also makes sense. I have another friend, Demi, who who doesn't like to see plays adapted to film because they're meant to be plays. And so often they're not as interesting on film as they would be in the theater. And I think part of this is because many plays are people talking in rooms. It's not inherently good or bad. It's just not made for the film medium. However, 12 Angry Men and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, both plays adapted for film. Films that are on this list were amazing. Absolutely amazing. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, by the way, ended up going on my own personal favorite movies of all time list just after one viewing because the writing and the acting is just so incredible that I was crying from a few minutes into the film. And what's interesting is it starts with the script. It starts with the script which in these cases were plays that were adapted for film, but we are starting with a baseline of incredible writing, sure, but it also really matters who is the director because there are so many examples of plays, Shakespeare even, that are made into terrible film adaptations. So 12 Angry Men and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf were really cool examples of what magic can be made out of play adaptations if you have the right director and if you just choose the right play, an unexpected delight for an opposite reason was King Kong, the 1933 original King Kong movie, which, which when it came out was one of the first monster movies. It is horror before there was much horror shown on film. The, the practical effects and puppeteering and all that went into creating King Kong and various other, um, terrors within the film were shocking to audiences at the time and when I started the film I wasn't sure. I, I think sometimes things hold up and other times it's just really lame. Practical effects, monsters, anything scary that maybe doesn't stand the test of time because of what we are exposed to now Um, I wasn't sure how I would feel about King Kong, but oh my gosh, I loved it. Faye Rei an icon, screaming at the top of the Empire State Building. What I realized watching this film is that when the emotion is there from the actors, it doesn't really matter if the effects makeup is a little outdated or if it's an obvious animatronic What matters is the acting and what matters is what the team of performers, directors, costume people, special effects, makeup people, prop designers and more are able to accomplish to create a world that still can be so scary or emotional on film. Even if with today's CGI uh, and special effects, you feel a little spoiled or a little used to things that look more realistic. If you haven't seen King Kong and you're curious about it, especially because it is October when this episode comes out and you might be wanting to watch a monster movie, I think you should watch it. Watch the original 1933 King Kong. Tell me what you think. Tell me what it felt like for you. These are all just my opinions, these are all just themes and films I wanted to highlight and I'd love to hear what all of you think, if there are ones in particular that you loved or you had very different reactions to. On that note, there were two films I wanted to point out on the list, Yankee Doodle Dandy and Swing Time, that upon completing, I was furious. Because both of these films, while they have their merits, while they have beautiful sequences of singing and dancing, both of these films have long scenes with blackface in them. For me, seeing that is so repulsive that it takes me out of the film completely and it makes me shut down. So I can't think about any other aspect. And in both of those circumstances, I also did not know ahead of time that that was going to happen. So some combination of disgust and shock made me shut down so much that I could barely process any other aspect of the films, and for this reason, I do think they should be taken off the list. Last year during the Black Lives Matter protests and the uprisings over the unjust murder of George Floyd, there was much discussion about what filmmakers, showrunners, actors needed to apologize for racist stereotypes that they had perpetuated on film by doing characters in blackface or just showing really offensive stories or telling stories that were not their own. Um, and while this was going on, There were a couple of shows, I know 30 Rock was one of them, I believe this also happened with Community and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, there were a number of shows that had episodes with blackface scenes, they were removed from their streaming services so as not to offend, and At the time I felt, and I still feel, that there should be, rather than removing the evidence, rather than saying, oh, this never happened. Oh, this is embarrassing now. Oh, I'm upsetting someone. Oh, I can't have a new audience know that I made this episode with blackface. No, I think that there should be a warning at the beginning of the episode. They should stay up on streaming. That, hey, Tina Fey can come say something about it. They should acknowledge that they did this thing and leave it up. Erasing the evidence of harm done does not mean that it didn't happen. And it only makes the guilty parties feel excused without actually doing anything to own up to the harm they've caused, without actually bravely showing up and and being self-critical. It just erases the evidence. I personally think that Swing Time and Yankee Doodle Dandy should be scrubbed from the list because of the blackface scenes, but that doesn't mean that the movies shouldn't exist at all, or that they could be on streaming services with some kind of introduction that acknowledges these issues, much like Gone with the Wind, another film on the AFI list. When you stream Gone with the Wind now, there is an introduction by a film historian, a black woman film historian who talks about the racism in Gone with the Wind, how we can navigate this wanting to appreciate what is good in the movie without brushing away the way that the black characters are so mistreated within the film. I think something like that would be a great idea for Yankee Doodle Dandy and Swing Time. I also think they don't belong on the list anymore. I think that there have been better things and this is why yet again, please for the love of God, AFI, update your list update your list. We have so many things that belong in those spaces without erasing the films from history. Just as AFI acknowledged that they have further further marginalized the voices of artists of color by producing these lists that only lift up, or mainly only lift up, white male directors, they can change the list. They can acknowledge the harm done and they can change the list. They can acknowledge the harm done and update it. They can acknowledge the harm done and put introductions to these films within the films themselves or insist that they are recut. I don't necessarily believe that the right thing to do is pretend it didn't happen. I believe that the right thing to do is consider amplifying better films, better artists, and, and a fuller perspective of what the United States is while also having enough integrity to talk about stories that have been lifted up and celebrated, that have been extremely offensive and racist and harmful. It goes without saying, if you've been listening so far, that my political beliefs influence the way that I see everything. And because of this, unsurprisingly, (laughs) Westerns are not for me. There were way too many Westerns on this list for my comfort zone, and I could individually uh, talk about each of them, but the reality is Westerns are not for me. They are really not for me. I will link to my Letterboxd account in the show notes so you can see my individual reviews for each of these films or many of the films because I started reviewing them earlier this year when I was about halfway through already. But you can go see my thoughts on some of the Westerns I don't think it's worth getting into in this episode because I just don't care. I don't care, it's not for me. I'm not the right person to judge them because it is so very much not for me. If you are interested in Westerns, go forth, watch them that are on the AFI top 100 list and uh, judge for yourself. On the subject of things that are simply not for me, George Lucas's film, American Graffiti, was to me just people driving around And it was so boring, yet again. There are many things that were people talking in rooms, that were people driving around that I found interesting, like Easy Rider was still interesting to me. American Graffiti was so boring, y'all. I couldn't care less. So if you want to see George Lucas's, I believe, first feature, I could be wrong about that, before he made Star Wars, you can check out American Graffiti and let me know if you loved it. I thought it was boring as hell. Couldn't care less. A bunch of teenagers who just graduated high school driving around in cars in Los Angeles. No plot. Boring. Another film that I felt that I quote-unquote should love is Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, which came out in the 50s, won more Oscars than any other film in history. I. It's one of those facts that I've known since I was a kid. It won 10 Oscars, and it has this famous chariot fight scene that is amazing. The the fight choreography and everything else that went into it is truly a spectacle to watch, but I couldn't care less about Ben-Hur. It was, yet again, it was just so not for me, perhaps also because I didn't grow up with a Christian, in a Christian household. I didn't grow up with a knowledge of religion or the Bible. A lot of the nuances and the Nostalgia or sentimental moments in the film that were very Christian were just lost on me. So it wasn't for me. I, in many ways, I think Spartacus had the impact on me that Ben-Hur is, was supposed to have. Now, since I'm at the end of my notes, I just want to thank all of you for listening. This is different than most many of the Art Life episodes. I wanted to just do something that was talking about a personal challenge, talking about my love of films... And um, sharing a little bit about, you know, the way that my, my singular view of the world influences my consumption of media, because I think it's really important to expose ourselves to art that is a window, right? A window into a different experience. And uh, many of these films are different experiences than what I live with. And some of them I enjoyed, even against my will, and others I was really repulsed by. So it's not to say that we should not expose ourselves to very different stories, but it's, it is to say that some of these are tired and need to be um, put down. There are better movies. There are simply better American films that can be celebrated on this list now but because i love hollywood and i love movies and as much as i might be complaining i really do love the industry i work in and it brings me so much optimism to know that we have power here i will simply uh i will simply end the my my list of movies i want you all to know about with bringing up How very much Hollywood loves to make movies about Hollywood. We all know this. When films like La La Land come out or The Birdman, they win a ton of Oscars because an inherently narcissistic industry loves to watch movies about itself. Um, Sunset Boulevard was one of my favorite movies before starting the list, and it is so much fun. This is one that before I knew I loved old movies or I loved some old movies. I I watched this and this was what turned the tide for me. Sunset Boulevard is the movie that I wasn't sure if I was going to like old Hollywood films, and that is the one that made me realize, oh, there's some. there are plenty of things I can enjoy here. All About Eve, similarly, is just one of the best written films I've ever seen. It's also about a complicated and difficult actress and just has some of the tightest writing there is. So All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard are two that are just so much fun. And I was also delighted by Sullivan's Travels, a film about... a a Hollywood director who decides that he is tired of making comedies. He's tired of making studio films. He wants to make a hard movie about poverty. He wants to make a movie that shows the suffering of the common man in America. And this studio begs and pleads him not to do this because no one wants to watch that. But this man, he, this very rich, successful director decides that no, he wants to be taken seriously. He wants to make this serious drama. And they say, you don't know anything about what it is like to live in poverty. You don't know what you're talking about. You cannot tell a story that you do not understand. And so he goes out penniless and tells his staff that they cannot help him. He immediately falls in love with a girl that he, with a young actress, Veronica Lake, whose name in the film is just the girl, by the way, which, ugh, but regardless. He immediately falls in love with a beautiful actress who he, for the first time ever, cannot help financially, cannot do favors for the way he is used to because he has committed himself to living in squalor so that he can earn the right to make a dark film. However, on his journey on Sullivan's travels, he realizes the value of comedy without giving anything else away. It is a beautiful hopeful movie. For anyone who is listening, who is an artist making joyful, colorful projects, who inspires people to dance, who wants to make cute things, pretty things, and most of all, funny art, please, please watch Sullivan's Travels because it filled my own heart up so much. I think we all struggle with self-consciousness as artists that if we care about the world, well, is what I'm making useful? There are terrible things going on. Why should I make a comedy? It's just distracting people. I should be making a disturbing documentary about the opioid crisis or whatever it is that we tell ourselves. This film, Sullivan's Travels, is such a great thing to watch if you need reassurance that comedy is needed, beauty is needed, distraction even is needed by those suffering the most. So if you are looking for affirmation, my dear artists, please watch Sullivan's Travels. one of the benefits of watching this whole entire list of 100 films is that I can now see how many writers were inspired by, how many directors were inspired by the films on this list, that, and reference them in ways that I didn't notice before. So, for example, Sullivan's Travels inspired an entire episode of 30 Rock. There is a whole episode that is clearly ripped off of Sullivan's Travels. And it's one of my favorite episodes of 30 Rock. And now I know where the concept came from. So if you're looking for inspiration, if you're looking for emotional catharsis, if you're looking to be inspired by movement, if you're looking to be inspired by special effects makeup and truly incredible acting, I have given you many titles that were my favorites. I'll be putting in the show notes just the names of the titles I loved and the names of the titles that I mentioned I did not recommend. But um, it is also up to you. I want to just say one more time, remind all of you, these are just my opinions about a list of 100 movies. This is my opinion that it needs to be reconsidered that the the there needs to be an updated list, not even today, but yesterday, but let's do something now, please AFI. My point is merely that you don't need to agree with me. For example, Louisa, who encouraged me to make this episode, mentioned that the deer hunter was very much not for her. And I love that. I love that it wasn't. I love that we both did this challenge and there were some things we responded to that the other didn't even though we have very similar beliefs. So, that's just a great reminder that there's no right or wrong. I'm not telling you all what you can like and what you can't like. I firmly believe in letting people enjoy things unless those things are actively causing harm. But these were my feelings and I wanted to share them all of share them with all of you because Many people encourage me to make this episode and because maybe you'll discover a couple new favorite films yourself or challenge yourself to watch some of the older films that maybe you didn't think you had an interest in. So the last thing I will say is actually a reminder of the thing I started with, which is that there is, there are only two films on this list made by directors of color and zero films made by women. So I will simply encourage all of you, if you have not seen and can handle The Sixth Sense and do the right thing to start there. Start with those two films, which are truly, I believe, two of the greatest films of all time and certainly are here to stay on the list of AFI's 100 Greatest American Films. Usually at the end of the episodes, Zandra and I would ask each other, what is the art life? but now that I'm flying solo hosting and uh, and don't have an interview subject to ask, tonight I will just say the art life is evolving. We as a culture are evolving, we as artists within our own lives are constantly evolving. We are messing up, we are starting over, we are restoring our integrity, do or say something hurtful, we are looking back on things we once loved and realize are not so funny anymore with the knowledge we now have. And we are looking forward to new art, to championing new voices and making sure that it gets seen. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to talk to me, your host, about a personal challenge that you did during quarantine or in the past year I would love to hear about art life related personal challenges. I think we could make a campfire episode out of this. This was mine that I wanted to share with all of you. But if you gave yourself a reading list, if you learned a new skill, a new craft, I would love to hear about it. because. Watching through this list of movies was something that I enjoyed and was very confronted by and sometimes annoyed with, but it's something that ultimately felt very gratifying to complete, expanded my knowledge of film, and also made me feel more confident in my beliefs and made me clearer on what kind of art I want to make. So if you had an art life related challenge or new skill you learned, I want to hear about it. I think it would be a great episode if we could all share those experiences that were growth edges for us, but that maybe we had a little extra time for in quarantine. You can reach out by sending us an email. It's theartlifeshow at gmail.com. We also now have twitter and instagram accounts which are at the art life show i would love 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 to hear from all of you and yet again i will just say thank you to louisa our listener who really encouraged me to do this episode thank you also to my dad and my stepmom who might be listening who did the same and to anyone else who asked my opinions throughout this process and to anyone who joined me in watching some of these movies there were many of you and i appreciate you all so very much my friends and fellow artists so with that welcome to the new edition of the art life started off with a solo host episode but looking forward to many interviews in the future and many more opportunities for listeners to contribute with that i love you from my side of the world i wish you all a good night bye this is the art life you can find the show online at theartlife.show and send letters to The Art Life, care of Grace Gordon, P.O. Box number 4292, Valley Village, California, 91617. Send email to theartlifeshow at or find us on Twitter and Instagram at theartlifeshow. Our theme music is The Stream by Rory.